Someone has written this little ditty about uh, marriage, about uh, kind of a humorous thing, I think, about uh, before marriage and a few years later. Before, you take my breath away. After, I feel like I'm suffocating. Before, she loves the way I take control of a situation. After, she calls me controlling and manipulative. Before, Ricky and Lucy, now Fred and Ethel. Before, love boat. After, Monday night fights. Before, he makes me feel like a million dollars. Afterwards, if I had a dime for every stupid thing he's done. Before, the sound of music. After, the sound of silence. Uh, Before, will of fortune. Afterward, jeopardy. Before, it's like living a dream. After, it's like living a nightmare. Before, Victoria's Secret. Now, Fruit of the Loom. And before, Romeo and Juliet. Afterwards, Bill and Hillary. Oh, oh, come on. Get, get over it, come on. Uh, well, while marriage is uh, one of the greatest things God ever created, and uh, is, uh, can be and should be by God's design the most wonderful, most enjoyable experience and relationship any of us ever have in this life, uh, still the best of marriages faces challenges, and you all agree with that if you're married. And sadly, many marriages break down, uh, some leading to divorce. In theory, uh, Christian marriages should be much better, right? After all, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have Jesus Christ as our advocate. Uh, We have the the scriptures as our guide. We have fellow believers who encourage us and strengthen us. Uh, And so in, in theory, we should be doing much better. But statistics tell us that we're not doing all that much better, although some of those statistics could be skewed a bit. Still, it's imperative that we know what God has to say about marriage and divorce. Uh, The text we're looking at today is not about how to have a good marriage uh, or how how God wants the marriage to work and function. Uh, Other scriptures deal with that. We looked a little bit at Ephesians chapter 5 last week and so forth. But but this this passage is not about that. This passage is about divorce. And and the scriptures teaches the full counsel of God. It doesn't just camp out on two or three topics. It deals with all the issues that we face in life. And the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, more so than any other book perhaps in the New Testament, deals with issue after issue after issue that we face. And one of those issues that we face are marriages that don't do well and that can sometimes lead to divorce. And we need to know what God has to say on that that terribly difficult subject that sometimes uh, shows up even in the lives of, of God's people. Uh, in uh, our text, we're going to look at two case studies that Paul gives us, uh, and he's going to outline and un- help us understand those. And we're going to look at one other uh, that the Lord Jesus himself gives us. So let's start with that. And I want you to look at chapter 6, verse 20 to start with. Remember, this is, I believe, the controlling verse for all of chapter 7. As he ends up chapter 6 talking about living for the Lord, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that our bodies are how we should live in these bodies. He says in verse 20, For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now that's the controlling verse of everything. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. He's purchased you. He purchased you at the awful cost of the blood, his own blood. He, he, that's what it cost to save your soul. And now you're his. As a result of that, you should therefore make it your ambition in life, above all else, to glorify God in your body. And then when we look at that, he moves immediately into chapter 7. Remember now, originally the chapters and verses were not there. 
They came along later, and so he's flowing right from chapter 6, right into chapter 7. He wants to talk about these difficult issues related to marriage and singleness and divorce and all those issues. But the controlling verse is 620. You're not your own. You belong to him. He purchased you. Glorify God with your body. So we need to keep that in mind as we go back to chapter 7 and begin to look at verse 10. In verse 10 he says, but to the married I give instructions. Now we need to back up two verses to verse 8. He says, but to the unmarried and widows he did such and such. So in the earlier verses he was talking about unmarried people, the single, single people. We looked at that last time. And he was saying that if you have the gift of singleness, uh, that's, good, that's a good gift to have. And you can live for Christ with a lack of other concerns. And you can serve him in that way. If you have that gift, that's wonderful. If you don't have that gift, then you shouldn't live that way. And so he talks about that and the issue of singleness that we looked at last time. But now we're moving in verse t- to mer- verse 10. And we're talking about married people. People who are now actually married. And uh, he says to them, uh, I give instructions, not I but the Lord. Now what he means by that, so some people misunderstand that. What he means by that is the things he's going to talk about briefly in these next couple verses are things the Lord has already given instructions about. They're, they're not things they really needed Jesus to, or Paul to talk about much because Jesus had already covered that. We'll look at that in just a moment. So he's not saying, you know, I'm putting myself, pitting myself against Jesus. He's simply saying Jesus has already dealt with those things. And we'll look at that in chapter 19 of Matthew in just a moment. But when we combine the teachings of Jesus, as we'll do that this morning, with what Paul is teaching here on this subject, as we look at that, we'll, and here's the big picture, just in case you nod off here somewhere. The, the big picture is this, divorce is not allowed for believers under any circumstance, save immorality. There is no other loophole. And we'll look at that in detail now. But going back to the, our text, in verse 10 he says, But, I, but the, to the married I give instructions, but not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And these terms, leave, and depart, and so forth, are all terms that mean divorce. So keep that in mind as we go through. Verse 11, But if she does leave our divorce... She must remain unmarried. So notice there, you can't uh, remain unmarried if you're, not mar- if you're still married. So when, he's, when, she, when he speaks here of her leaving, it's not simply separation. So some people look at this text and say, well, it's talking about separation. It's not. It's talking about the breaking of a union. It's talking about divorce. And so he says here uh, that if she leaves, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So the picture here is this, that uh, we're talking about a divorce, and he says that uh, among believers, um, she should not leave her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried, and he is not to divorce her. The key word here is reconciliation. The goal is reconciliation. As long as there is a possibility of reconciliation, then, then uh, we don't move on, go on to remarriage because the goal is reconciliation. So it is real possible that a husband and wife can be divorced and yet come back together by God's grace and reunite and have a, a good and honoring marriage. Now let's go to Jesus' teachings. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 19 with me. 
And let's see what Jesus had to say about this. Paul references this. But Jesus goes into a lot of detail in general. We start with chapter 19, verse 3. And Jesus is talking uh, to the Pharisees about these issues. The Pharisees come to him in verse 3 and they want to test him. So we start with a test. He says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? So we notice, first of all, they don't want the answers. They're not coming for answers. They're coming to test and trick Jesus. That, that's their plan, which always ends up poorly for the Pharisees and the Gospels, if you read them. They never come out on top. But the issue that they were talking about here, where they were trying to trap Jesus, was a, a debate going on among the Jewish leadership about divorce. And they had two, uh, two heroes, you might say, two gurus. One was a guy named Rabbi Shammai. And Shammai said that the divorce was allowed only for immorality. And then Rabbi Hillel said divorce was allowed for any cause, for any reason. If you, if you get upset with your wife, and in the Jewish system, only men divorced their wives. In the Greek system, sometimes wives turned that around. But for the most part in the Jewish system, they didn't. And so he said, you could, you could divorce her for any reason whatsoever. So this was the debate. What, what are the allowable reasons for divorce? And so Jesus wants to weigh in on that. And here is the key issue. What did the Old Testament mean when it said divorce was allowable? Now we have to go back to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and look at verse 20, uh, chapter 24 with me. This is the principle, if, if not pretty much the only passage in the Old Testament that's pertinent to where we're at. But here's the issue. Chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 to 4. And this is what the Pharisees were referencing. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. There's our key word, indecency. What does that mean? And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Okay, now the verses 3 and 4 are not are what we want to deal with today, but let me just say this. The reason why this, these verses are there is he's saying this. You're not going to treat your wife like a piece of property. Uh, the pagans around that area, pagans throughout the world of the, of the Old Testament time, treated their wives like they were property. They did anything they wanted to with them. Uh, the, Jew, the Lord said, as you live for me, that will not be the case. You're not going to just swap her back and forth. If you divorce her, it's over. You're not going to bring her back. You're not going to remarry her. You're not going to, she gets married to somebody else and divorce, you can't have her back. You're not playing that game. You're going to treat her with dignity. And that was a huge step up for the world of that time. But going back to verse 1 is our, our issue. He says if, if he's found some indecency in her and writes a certificate of divorce. What does indecency mean? What is allowable for divorce in the Old Testament system? 
Well, many say that we look at this from our angle and say, well, he's talking about immorality. If, she, if, she's, un, if she's unfaithful, then I can divorce her. But the word indecency doesn't say that, and here's the problem. The, uh, under the system at the time, under the Jewish law, immorality was a capital offense. So if a wife cheated on her husband, or the ch husband cheated on her wife, all parties that were involved with that, the cheating parties, would, would be stoned to death. So he couldn't be saying you can divorce her for indecency because you would have actually killed her. She would have been stoned by, by the judges of the time. So indecency cannot mean that. So that takes us back to our passage in, in, first, in uh, Matthew chapter 19. And this is what the Pharisees were debating. What does it mean? What does that word mean? So we pick it up in verses 4 to 6, and Jesus lays the foundation for marriage. And in essence, with verse 4, he says this, uh, Look, you're in such a hurry to find a loophole to get out of your marriages that you have forgotten what marriage is all about. And I want to take you back, Jesus is saying, to the foundation of marriage, to the design that God had for marriage. I want you to see its intention by God at this point. And so that's what he does, beginning in verse 4. And he says, and he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus takes them back to the first two chapters of Genesis. And he gives us four essentials of a marriage. What is a, what is a marriage? There's four essentials that Jesus very quickly lays out for us based upon the creation's accounts, Genesis 1 and 2. Number one, a, a, a marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, we might get kicked out of YouTube for this, but uh, this is going to, uh, this challenges all this gender issues, all the homosexual marriage issues, all these types of things, this immediately stops that in its tracks. God created men, God created women, men and women marry, and there is no exception to that. That's the essential. Number two, marriage involves a leaving and a cleaving. He's going to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, 24 now. And marriage involves leaving a temporary home life with mom and dad, and joining with another to create a lifetime relationship with a wife or husband. It's a leaving that which is behind physically usually, emotionally, and moving on to, to a new relationship with a spouse. And so I tell people uh, based on this in premarital counseling, I ask them every time, could you move a thousand miles away from mom and dad? And if they hesitate on that, I'm going to suggest you're not ready to get married. That doesn't mean you want to. That doesn't mean you will. But that means you should be able to do that because you have left a temporary situation uh, of the home life and you have formed another relationship with someone else. You must leave and you must cleave. And how many marriages over time have been shipwrecked because one of the partners did not leave properly, mom and dad, and cleave to their spouse? Thirdly, the third essential is unity. He says they'll become one flesh in verse 6. They're no longer two but one flesh. They're, they're put together in a, in a, 
union that is typified in scripture by one flesh spiritually, physically, emotionally they're together, they're stuck <laughs> I often also in premarital counsel say it's kind of like super glue you know, now I've never had much luck with super glue I've never really, I don't think ever glued something properly but I've glued my fingers together many times <laughs> and when you try to separate those that's painful isn't it and that's what happens when, I, when two people who are one flesh separate it's a ripping apart of one flesh and it's painful, even in, the mar in a marriage that is bad it's still a painful thing because there is a, a union that God has formed in marriage, it is, it's not simply signing a, a, a marriage certificate and saying I do before a pastor or a judge is becoming one flesh, it's a union and fourth, the fourth essential is that divorce is never intended by God, now he's going to his subject now he says what therefore God has joined together let no man separate marriage uh, is an act whereby God has joined two people together, now notice that it's not again simply my choice or something I've done but when I come together with someone else in a marriage relationship God has joined us together and let no man separate us, that, that used to be that little phrase right there used to be common in marriage uh, wedding ceremonies uh, I don't think I hear that much anymore maybe that's because so many people don't want to obey that, I don't know but I think it ought to be part of it, what God has put together should never be considered something that we should separate for God has put it together now of course the Pharisees didn't like this so in verse 7 they begin to object to what Jesus said they say this to him, why did Moses command us command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away so the first thing they do is twist scripture Jesus, Moses never commanded any such thing but they're going to twist scripture, by the way don't ever twist scripture on Jesus they're going to learn that the hard way every time they try it and so we go on and Jesus picks it up in verse 7 he said to them why, uh, verse 8 I mean he said because of the hardness of your heart Moses permitted you to divorce your wives from the beginning it was not this way, okay Moses permitted it but here's the reason he permitted it because of the evilness of your hearts the ugliness, the hardness of your hearts uh, the Lord permitted it in the Old Testament times now Jesus goes on to give a, a statement on divorce Okay, verse, in the verse 8 he says from the beginning has not been this way verse 9 and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery it's, uh, it was never God's intention for people to get divorced he, it was not his design, he allowed it in the Old Testament because of the evilness of their hearts, that doesn't mean he approved of it a divorce was never his intention, and I have very rarely ever seen anybody get married with the idea they're going to get divorced I have seen it though, I remember some many years ago someone who who was getting married and, and we asked this friend of mine why are you getting married to this woman, you guys don't even seem to like each other that much and he said well if it doesn't work out we'll, we'll just uh, get divorced, guess what, two years later they were divorced so that's a rough way to go into marriage right, and it's never intended by God 
Why did Jesus, for what reason did Jesus allow divorce? He said, except for immorality. Uh, there's been various translations of this Greek word pornea, fornication, adultery, immorality. The word, as we've looked at before in 1 Corinthians, is the word that simply means a, a immorality. It, it means a, the, a direct sexual a- act that breaks a marriage union. That's the idea here. It's not lust. It's, it's not some minor details. It's a direct act of sexual involvement with someone who is not your spouse. And for that reason, he said, divorce is allowed. And if divorce is allowed, then remarriage is too, according to verse 9. But it has to be a divorce on biblical base. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians. Let me summarize what Jesus has just said before Paul presses on. Jesus is saying God never intended divorce. Jesus is saying no Christian should ever consider divorce nor initiate divorce. However, if a spouse initiates divorce either by divorcing or by unfaithfulness, then the innocent party can recognize that as divorce and under those circumstances can be remarried. Now let's go back to what Paul is saying in chapter 7 verse 12. He's going to deal with an issue that has not been dealt with by Jesus. And so he says in verse 12, but to the rest I say not the Lord. This has really confused a lot of people. Because when he says, I'm going to say this is not the Lord, some people say, well, this is an inspired text. This is not biblical stuff. This is Paul's opinion. But that's a big mistake. Don't pit Paul against Jesus. This is both are, everything Jesus said, everything Paul wrote is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by him, by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, whatever either one has said here in the scriptures is from God. So Paul is not pitting himself against Jesus. I get so tired of reading things and hearing things. Well, Paul hijacked Christianity. Paul contradicts Jesus, blah, blah, blah. There's no such thing in the scriptures. But he's saying here, look, in in this verse uh, 12, he's saying, Jesus never dealt with this topic. I'm going to deal with it now. And so what is that topic? He's going to talk about divorce in spiritually mixed marriages. Divorce in marriages where apparently uh, a a couple would come together unsaved, and one one of the spouses got saved, but the other one did not. What should we do? in relationship to divorce in that. Let's take, a, let's take a look. Paul lays out two situations. In verse 12, if the unbeliever is willing to stay. So in verse 12, he says this, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, he must not send her away. So look at the two Situation, both from the wife and from the husband here. He says, uh, if the believer, the believer is not to divorce his spouse, but if the unbeliever does so, then what should we do when they want to divorce? But now he's talking before he gets to that in these verses, what if the unbelieving spouse wants to stay in the marriage? What should we do? And in essence, he says, 
stay together. Now, there's two reasons why they should stay together, even though one's a Christian, one's not. Two reasons, one given by Jesus, one given by Paul. First of all, they're still one flesh. Whether they're both Christians or not, they're one flesh. And that, what God has joined together, no man should separate. Secondly, Paul gives the other reason here, and that is that the believing spouse is a means of sanctifying the whole family. This is an interesting verse of scripture here in verse 14. Look at it. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Huh? What an unusual verse of scripture. There's no verse of scripture like this in all the Bible. And of course, because of that, many people have kind of gone the wrong direction, I believe, with this. Some believe this is a, a, a promise to the believing spouse. If they stay in the home, that their family members are saved. Or, if not that, they will be saved later. So I, I knew, I met a woman in the first year of my marriage who believed that. She was married to an unbeliever. She had a daughter in our youth group who was complete, a rebellious a young lady who wanted nothing to do with Christ, but she believed because she was staying married to an unbeliever that both her daughter and her husband were was saved. But folks, that contradiction contradicts the rest of Scripture, doesn't it? Each individual must determine that for themselves. Nobody is saved for you. Nobody can save you. It's a relationship between you and the Lord alone. We're responsible for that. And verse 16 solves that issue. It says for the, in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? It doesn't promise salvation. It says, how do you know? And, and we have to turn to 1 Peter 3 on that. The other passage of Scripture that weighs in on this subject somewhat. 1 Peter chapter 3, you're, you're familiar with this one. Uh, many of you are. Verses 1 and 2 speaking directly to the wife here. And it says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of the wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. No promise here. Notice, the Lord does not promise that if you live a good, godly Christian life, that your unsaved husband will necessarily come to Christ. But at the same time, it says they may be one. There, there's no greater weapon, there's no greater power or tool, tool in that marriage for a husband to come into Christ and to see a godly wife. And, and we can reverse that too with a godly husband. And so when we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he is not promising that if you stay in a relationship with an unbelieving spouse that everybody in the family is going to be saved. Sanctified simply means it's set apart. In the New Testament, you can, animals are set apart, food is set apart, people are set apart for God's purposes. What it's saying is this, the presence of the believer in a marriage and in a home puts that marriage in, a, in that home in a sphere of God's blessing. Because that believer is in that home, the blessing of God, the favor of God is on that believer and that permeates the home life. And therefore to stay in that home gives that home the best chance possible for them to see the work of Christ in the life of a believer. 
and for Christ to use that as a, as a tool to bring uh, the unbeliever to himself. Now secondly, verse 15, look at verse 15. What if the unbeliever wants to divorce, divorce the believer? What happens then? Verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The leave here, is once again, is speaking of divorce. It's not separation. If they leave, let them leave. And uh, so, Christ, so they can do so. Um, can they then, under that case, be remarried? So it's very obvious, he says, if the unbeliever wants to divorce, you can't stop them unless you want to deny Christ. And so you let them go and, and, uh, and because the Lord has called us to peace. But at the same time, he's saying here, look, uh, in those cases, I think you are allowed to remarry. Now, let me give you a little quick story. Back when I was about 22 years old, I was traveling back from uh, some ministry I'd been involved with, another friend, and we stayed overnight at his house. And while there, uh, a couple, na- couple days, somebody came to the house, some friend of the family, who was about 25 years old. And this individual had just been divorced by his wife. She had been remarried, and he was about 25 years old, and, and he was under the influence of the Bill Gothard ministry of the time. Now, some of you might remember Gothard. Uh, he's, he's faded in time. So much of his teaching has been proven to be unbiblical, and his whole life and ministry has co- collapsed. But at that time, his word was almost law in the life of many people. And Bill Gothard taught that no one could ever remarry under any circumstances. And therefore, this young man said, I'll never remarry. And I thought, and I still remember, 25 years old, his wife divorces him, she's unfaithful, she gets remarried, she has children, has a family, but he'll never enjoy that because of her sin. Is that what Scripture teaches? I think the Scripture teaches clearly from Jesus' teaching that if, if there's a biblical divorce, then there's a biblical reason for remarriage. But I, I, we also prove that in our text right here, going down to uh, verse 27 and 28. He says this, Are you bound to a wife? That's talking about marriage. Do not seek to be released. That's talking about divorce. Are you released from a wife? Are you divorced from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now he's talking about circumstances of the time. We'll deal with that in the future. But if you marry, you have not sinned. So obviously this person is, is not married or he couldn't marry, right? So when he's talking about being released from a wife, it's divorce. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned, yet, yet such will have trouble in this life. I'm trying to spare you. There's a context there we'll look at later. But notice he is saying here that remarriage has the sanction of God if it's a biblical divorce. And I think this text is abundantly clear on that. The bottom line though, going back to verse 15, he says, but God has called us to peace. The bottom line is, uh, as we look at these circumstances, is he says, God has called us to peace. When we think of peace, we think of tranquility, we think of calmness, we think of lack of battles. But the Jewish people, and Paul was a Jew, thought of peace as much broader than that. The word peace, they, they greeted each other with peace, shalom. And what they meant by that is, I wish you well in every aspect of life. In the full orb of your life, may you have the abundant favor of God. That's what peace meant. And so when Paul uses that word here, he's saying this, you are to do that which 
which in the full orb of life brings honor and glory to God. That, that's the picture going back to chapter 6 and verse 20. This teaching here is so different from our world today because marriage is being devalued by most people today. We have much higher values here. I read recently that in 1960, less than 1% of children under 18 experienced the divorce of their parents. Two generations later, 50% do. Isn't that amazing? The Bible hasn't changed, but the culture's changed. As God's people, we follow the Bible, not culture. Again, I want you to note, as I summarize all this, and look at a few real quick applications, that the thrust of the whole chapter goes back to 620. 620. You are God's. You belong to Him. And therefore, you glorify God in your body. Everything He's saying is wrapped around that. So here's a couple of four different scenarios that is being dealt with in this very complicated passage of Scripture. Number one, are you single? We saw this last time. Can you, get, can you serve Christ better remaining single or being married? That's the issue that he's talking about here. If you have the gift of singleness, fine. If you don't, then marry. That's the issue. Personally, uh, most of us need to be married. I know personally in my own life that that uh, marriage is good for me. I, get, I can get too introspective. I can get too self-centered. Uh, I get too wrapped up in other things. And marriage brings, and family brings me out of that. God uses that in my life. It actually bothers me a little bit. I saw a documentary several times called uh, Alone in the Wilderness, where a guy went into uh, Alaskan wilderness for 30 years, never came out for 30 years. And this is not one of those you know, reality shows. This is the real deal. And he stayed there all that time. It bothers me that that's kind of winsome to me at times. That, that shows my self-centeredness. God doesn't make most of us to be hermits. You know, it's easy to want to escape. And yet marriage and family and, and friends and church bring us into an environment where we, where we don't escape. Secondly, do you have a tough marriage? Some of you probably do. Are you considering divorce? Again, the question is not what is best for me what will bring me the greatest happiness, but what will bring the greatest glory to Jesus Christ? This reason is totally out of step with the world's ideas today. God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. Divorce among believers is a scandal. Divorce dishonors God and is only allowed, never, never commanded, because of immorality or desertion on, on the part of the unbeliever from the believer Thirdly, are you divorced and considered, considering getting remarried? Again, the question is, what is best for the glory of God? God says we are not to marry unless the former marriage is dissolved. And so only if the, if in the eyes of God, if that marriage has been dissolved, are we allowed to remarry? Fourth, are you divorced? But you have remarried, but your divorce was not for biblical reasons. Some have taught, you know, that you're living in perpetual adultery. Some have even taught that you need to divorce your second husband or a wife. I don't think Scripture teaches any such thing. I think the Scriptures teach that uh, all sins are forgivable. Divorce and remarriage, or, or either, either one of those, is, are not the unpardonable sins. And so we can go to the Lord and receive forgiveness for those sins 
We're not living in perpetual adultery. The Lord will forgive that. But also don't use that as a license to sin because the Lord will forgive. The most basic question in the Christian life is for whose glory are you living? Today when people think about marriage and divorce, they think about themselves personally. If somebody is having a hard time in their marriage, they think, well, I don't love him anymore. Or, or this, this is a mess. Or don't I deserve to be happy? I mean, surely I, I'm not expected to stay in this union that's not a, making me happy. But those are never the questions given to us in Scripture. Those are never the issues. The issue is always, do I honor Jesus Christ in this way? What, what is the most glorifying, honoring thing I do with my life? is always the question that we must address. Even in marriage, divorce, remarriage, any of those types of practical issues, what most honors Jesus Christ? What brings him glory? My body is not mine. I belong to another who purchased me. I glorify him in my body. And that wraps around everything that we've said today. Lord, we, uh, we come to you today where uh, divorce is not a happy uh, issue to talk about is a tough one it's difficult and it's not something we want to address but your scriptures have given us clarity on this and we need to know about these things especially in a world that uh, where marriages are failing right and left Lord help our marriages to be honoring to you um, from this Lord for any of the marriages that are here that might be struggling may they may they have a maybe even a new lease here on on that marriage to say you know I need to really honor God with my marriage, with my life, with how I treat and, and my spouse. I need to, to let the world see Christ in me and in us. Lord, that would be the wonderful, perfect takeaway from a message like this. We pray, Father, for each of us as we make hard decisions and hard issues of life. We pray that we can honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.